who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Ma, and I'd like to welcome you to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, presented by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I'm super excited to introduce you to Andy Karstner today. Andy is a senior strategist and space cowboy at X, the moonshot factory at Alphabet. Andy has spent the last two decades driving renewable energy innovation and other climate solutions. In addition to his role at X, Karstner is the founder and executive chairman of Elemental Labs, an organization that pursues systems-based solutions to promote a sustainable future and equitably empower communities. Also, from 2005 to 2008, Andy served as the Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, managing a $2 billion annual federal portfolio devoted to applied science, research, and development. In this role, he helped to assemble significant bipartisan coalitions to implement and enact the Energy Policy Act, the Energy Independence and Security Act, and the American Combeats Act, all of which continues to remain foundational to U.S. energy policy. So I'm very excited because Andy's my colleague and I get to work with him. And today I get to ask him all sorts of questions that we don't normally talk about <laughs> at work. So I'm going to start with the first one, Andy. I know you've journeyed through the world and you've collected an exceptionally rich set of experiences from Houston to Hong Kong. What were you like as a 20-year-old? Most of the folks in this class are in their 20s and, and curious, you know, how, I'm curious how you were motivated, what drove you during that time? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I have such respect and, uh, and esteem for you, my colleague, that I should be interviewing you, but, um, but I'm honored to have the tables turned. Um, at 20 years old, uh, I was as had as much nervous energy and drive as I do today, I would say. Um, I, was, uh, I was really um, um, deeply moved by what was the existential challenge of the day, which was living under the threat of nuclear annihilation. Uh, that was top of mind to me. It was something that I'd grown up with as a uh, military kid on bases. And, um, uh, you know, so much of my experience as a young person was uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, I was young. I didn't participate in the Vietnam War. But, but, but my father was deployed abroad and, and other uh, school children's fathers. And, and so um, uh, that sort of constant overhang of a fairly militarized society uh, deeply engaged in foreign places and uh, with a cloud of Cold War and an arms race, uh, really consumed uh, uh, much of my mission. And, uh, and it drove me to uh, really uh, want to eliminate nuclear weapons. So, um, so at 20, um, uh, I, that's what I was engaged in. I mean, I, all the other fun things too, uh, you know, going to the pub and having a good time and all the other crazy things. But, but, um, but, um, but that was an overriding sort of uh, political and social uh, sentiment of the day. Amazing. So, you know, um, that new, from nuclear weapons, you went into energy and then nature. So I want to talk about experience I had with you about two years ago now. And, you know, as part of the Andy Kirshner fan club, we get to do some really fun things, like go and walk through Muir Woods and sit under the Redwoods, you know, where the UN came together and sat in 1945 in honor of FDR. 
um, it was a totally visceral experience for me because um, these trees have been around for hundreds of years. And I recognized at that point, and many times when we go on walks uh, these days, that you know it's not humans and nature like separate, right? Humans are part of nature, and you have over time, you know, from nuclear proliferation to nature, you've developed a really deep connection with nature and a deep respect and commitment for it. Tell us more about that. Huh? Well, that's that's a fun one to play with. <clears throat> I guess I should. I felt like I left myself hanging there with sort of a dark cloud with that last answer. Um, you know, I I um, I should give you the other half of the answer. I mean, you very specifically asked about when I was twenty. Um, uh, you know, but when I was 22, um, uh, you and I had, had had the conversation before that, that you, know, uh, it, you know, it was 24 months later and I couldn't have predicted it. I was at the Berlin Wall chipping it away at the dawn of a brand new era. You know, uh, uh, Gorbachev, take this wall down, the strategic arms reduction talks, the end of the Cold War, things that people didn't see coming 90 and 120 days out. So it wasn't that that darkness and that overhang and that anxiety and hiding under the desk and the and Dan Rather reporting from Saigon and all that stuff um, influenced the rest of my life. It, it was deeply eclipsed by the spirit of hope and optimism that I experienced as a graduating senior when I was 22, which is very different than when I was 20 and taking courses in East German economics and comparative communist systems that have served me nothing in my whole life. Um, um, but... So, so, so then you'd say, well, you know, what do you do when you're 22 and the world has changed, uh, uh, different from the courses you were taking your, your senior fall semester, and now the entire, uh, uh, there's been such an inflection, such a vertical shock to the world order. Um, well, you know, I was challenged by this, um, oh, what, what do they used to say? A new, uh, let's make a new world order. And, and it uh, wasn't make the world safe for democracy. Let's make a new world order. And, and, um, and so I sort of strapped on a backpack and wanted to go see the earth a little bit and understand about it. And I found, much like when I was a child, acting as the navigator on the cross-country trips my family would take from the open, fairly deserted, hot plains of Texas, um, uh, uh, up through the Arbuckle Mountains and the fault lines and the seismology of Oklahoma and into the the wheat fields of Kansas and across the Ozarks and up through the cornfields and finally ending up in the land of 10,000 lakes in Minnesota with firs and pine trees and, and all kinds of natural wonder, I found myself much more enamored with nature than with man-built things on the journey like that. And I found the sort of the same experience while a lot of my class peers were, you know, going from Ural uh, you know, train station to train station and logging all the wonderful things that our culture, Western civilization produces in Paris and the Prado and Madrid and so forth. You know, I found myself camping in farmer fields and, and um, um, just more enamored with the natural open spaces and what I could learn about them. I don't think that I developed it particularly stronger than anybody else. It's hard to walk in anybody else's shoes. I, I like to think that we all have a sensibility and a relationship with nature, and it's really a question of whether we remove the insulation that we've built for ourselves and allow ourselves to encounter it. Um, because basically, whether I'm a small boy traveling, navigating in a car, or whether I'm a young backpacker, or whether it's today, you know, going to a major conservation area, um, in all cases, it's just connecting with my own innate sense of wonder and, and discovery, and then letting that sort of fire my, you know, serotonin and synaptic impulses. 
<laughs> well, you know what? This is the time for forest bathing. I realize how much and how important it is for us to just be outdoors once a day. As we're sitting together here on a screen, you know, I'm glad I still get to connect with you. But now I go on daily walks, right? And and it's just a reminder that we operate at a different frequency than you know the digital world. But with that, you know, it's it, it's interesting for me because I think you talked a lot about um, you know you, you've had nature as a passion, you've been committed to it, and uh, you spent a lot of time thinking about how we might value nature differently. Like I value nature, but I don't, I can't put a price tag to that tree outside, right? Yeah. How do you think about that now, how, and, and why should we value nature? Like, what difference would that make if we could measure the treasure as you speak? Yeah. Um. You know, I, 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 you know, even when I can't do the daily walk, I got to say that every morning that I go into my backyard and look at the redwoods, you know, with the morning light, I think of it as a miracle. You know, and Einstein used to say, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that think uh, that, uh, America, that nothing is a miracle and those who think that everything is a miracle. You know, and I'm, I'm deeply in sort of that latter camp. And, and, you know, I always kind of think that actually everybody is. They just have to allow themselves to... Uh, to uh, not uh, to not lose their uh, eight-year-old spirit, but but the um, um, you know I don't think it's a choice of whether we're going to ultimately value nature. I think it is an inevitable, inexorable necessity. Uh, uh, as in, if we fail to do it, we will be the first species to have designed our own demise. Okay, that, that's an incredible thing. We don't have uh, big claws and uh, camouflage and, uh, and hairy pelts and the things that nature provides to so many other uh, 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 species. We have our brains. That's all we have. That is the only evolved piece of our entire being that is of any use in ensuring our longevity and the survival of our species. And if we neglect to use it to and manage in a sustainable way those things that give us security to eat and drink and breathe and thrive, then we, of our own will, will be the only species known to have designed our own demise. And so since we have designed systems which do put a value on nature, it puts a value on exploiting nature, on extracting nature, on, on destroying nature, um, uh, we can also uh, uh, design to conserve nature, to, to use nature as an ally in enhancing our quality of living, to use nature as an ally in mitigating the problems that, we, that have been self-imposed. And, and, and um, uh, so it's not like some people look at it and go, well, what a radical theory to uh, create valuation and market pricing for natural capital. And I would say, having grown up in Texas and been a part of the energy industry my whole life, we, we actually do this all the time. We value a tree, we value it as lumber. And if we're not valuing it as lumber, we value it as worthless or potential lumber. The only question is whether we're actually going to value it for what we scientifically know it can provide to us, a source of respiration and transpiration, a, a source of oxygen production, unlike any machinery we could possibly devise, a source of sequestration, unlike anything we have yet to biomimic. And, and so it, it's sort of a foolhardy mission to say, let's take away 
those miraculous beings that coexist with us in symbiosis. Let's remove symbiosis to make it harder for our species to thrive. So since we've imposed this design and designed a market system, a, a design a tragedy of the commons, of course we can design a remedy of the commons. But, but you know, I, that's why I go back to this Berlin Wall thing. I'm of the belief that we can. We can solve big intractable problems. We can preempt our, our own worst tendencies to destroy ourselves or erode our capacity or live with hostility. And, and in this case, we actually don't have a choice. We just have to execute and fast. So why is it that we haven't accelerated towards this? Like, what is holding us back? Like, what are the, are, are we the frog in the boiling water? Like, I think most of us really do appreciate nature, but, you know, what are the obstacles in the way for, for you seeing our ability to remedy the commons? Like, what are the obstacles that prevent corporations and nonprofits and governments from, from, from treasuring the, the, the wonders? You know, I, it's a great question, and it's a question bigger than me in the sense that, you know, all I can do is speculate on it. Um, I, I, I feel like there's a sociological underpinning to it to, in, in truth. You know, I felt so uh, uh, gratified to grow up in a country where you were empowered to do anything if you worked hard enough and tried to pursue it and you had a good idea whose time has come. And that's really, you know, the student constituency we're talking to. They're entrepreneurs, they're innovators, they're catalysts. And, 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 and I think that that used to come with a sense of boundless optimism. And my sense is that that optimism has eroded. It's, it's either become somewhat complacent or it's become self-doubt. And there's in, insufficient, um, um, there's not a center of gravity or, uh, or leadership, even from our, from our highest offices, that would inspire a sensibility that we should be confident, that we can devise solutions, particularly for those problems that we have self-imposed. And so first, the first thing is, you know, I, the motto I've always lived by is, you know, if, if you can see it and you, and you believe it, you can achieve it. And, and, and so, so the first thing is, for, there's no lack of concept. I think there's a lack of belief. And, and, um, uh, but I, I don't, I, I'm not uh, even remotely deterred, and you know this uh, from where we work, that, that we have the technological means and the capacity to innovate solutions at scale and speed commensurate with the problems we face. The question is, us as a bottleneck in our optimism, our decision-making, our collaboration, and our execution. Huh, that's great. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's an interesting time. You mentioned earlier, you know, the world changed for you when you were a 22-year-old within 90 to 120 days, right? So we're yeah. kind of in that state. Right, you know, I've, there's seniors sitting in the audience right now who just saw their entire world change. I mean, all the students, obviously. Oh, you know, same no, thing. Like, you're probably seeing some interesting parallels, and yet, you know, as you chose to believe decades ago, rather than it being a dark time, you chose to see the hope in that situation. What would you say to the seniors today who are graduating into this extraordinary time? It's hard, you know, my daughter's graduating from high school in this virtual thing and, you know, we, we're, we should be hugging each other and holding each other and high-fiving each other and everybody works so hard and, and my heart hurts for, for this, you know, idea that the very thing we need most is something that could harm us and that, that we, it, it, it's a perverse irony and it's, 
uh, you know, and you know, you can say all the all the homonyms you want about you know adversity breeds strength and so forth. We're certainly testing that, but but you know what I I, I, I you you're right in the analogy. I, I feel very strongly about that. Um, and, and, you know, the last time I felt this way, of course, was 9-11. It wasn't, you know, by the time the, the, the great um, uh, recession came about, uh, people were, you know, oh, my God, the great recession. But if you'd gone through sort of 9-11 um, or the 1987 pullback, the great recession felt like an economic adjustment. You know, it's the same here a little bit. We've got a corollary that is the, an extraordinary economic adjustment. It's a, it's a jolt. It's a, uh, it's, it exceeds the great recession. And yet it is bifurcated, unusually, unlike anything we have ever seen in the history of mankind, that we have accelerating market performance with record unemployment. Okay, we have a complete cognitive dissonance of, of separation because all the policy was directed towards mitigating a financial crisis. In fact, it was the only learning curve or tools the federal government had. So basically, in the entire existence of the republic, we've, we've accumulated a trillion dollars of debt until this stimulus in which we've now gone to about three and a half trillion in a matter of weeks. So at three and a half trillion, and where does that liquidity go at a time that we're completely closed? Well, it all goes to Wall Street. And so everybody's recovering everything on their equities, and they're racing to see where the top is, and it's completely irrationally bifurcated financial crisis from economic crisis. And of course, all these graduating seniors are moving into economic crisis world, okay? Not financial crisis that didn't happen, okay? Everybody's going to get their frothy equity and figure out what happens with that, and and this summer is going to be really tough. But, but, the, but the, um, um, when they go out in this economic recession world, the first thought is, oh, my God, where did all the jobs go? And what am I going to do? And, and so forth. The next thought ought to be, you know, I'm, I'm a Stanford student. I'm, I'm an empowered, uh, um, educated, uh, valuable individual. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an innovator. The world needs my wits, my guts, my capacity to sleep on a couch, my capacity to use a phone and, and call my network, my capacity to come up with a better idea. Because as hard as these times are, the greatest opportunities, the greatest opportunities for inflection are veiled in misfortune. And we have never seen this level of misfortune. And so, you know, most of these students won't have kids yet. They don't have family obligations. They got debt, you know, probably, and, you know, going into it. But, 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 when they get out there full of ideas and energy and action, you know, and, and Stanford right here at the epicenter of global innovation, a true sort of Florence kind of place, it, you know, um, um, the opportunities are going to be immense, but they're going to be self-made. This is not through the career placement office. This is not uh, uh, somebody's going to train me and apprentice me. This is going to be I'm applying my energy, my ideas, and my sense of mission and then I will follow the stream to the river and end up, you know, with a torrent. And, and, and I, I guarantee the people who are in this podcast are all going to be fine. And then, so the first thing they've got to say to themselves is, I'm fine, and I'm in America, and I'm safe, and I have a Stanford degree, and, I've, and I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm here in Silicon Valley, and thank God, because I've got it as good as anybody possibly could right now. For sure, for sure. You know what? We are safe. We have food to eat for the most part, right? Might be limited in choices, 
our environment is actually quickly healing right now with fewer cars in the road and we're seeing some patterns. Like this is the great experiment right now with shelter at home in, in Santa Clara County and the Bay Area. Um, there's lots of great things to look forward to. And I, 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 I got Sorry, Evelyn, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I've got a good entrepreneur in my portfolio, one of the greats. I mean, I think he was EY's entrepreneur of the year last year, Joda Simone from Carbon 3D, who you might remember, uh, you know, is a doer. And, and, um, you know, Carbon 3D had a big $800 million contract with Adidas, and they've got Ellen Coleman from Dow as the CEO. Joe's very self-actualized, put her in place, and Malali on the board, and they were right on their way to unicorn status. And the minute this hit, instead of saying, oh, my God, people aren't going to buy tennis shoes, Joe said, oh, my God, I can produce more swabs than any swab factory in ways nobody remotely anticipated. So I'm going to go to Stanford Hospital. I'm going to get the spec. I'm going to understand it to a T. You know, he called me. We hooked up with the governor's task force. And now that entire company is sort of a leader in these swaps. Now, that's not a high margin, high frame business. But nobody will ever forget the decisive leadership, action, risk-taking, intelligent, finding the stream to the river, you know, that, that Joe has done here. And I guarantee that when he goes out for his next round, people are going to go, that company can do anything. So I mean, so so I, I just bring that up because the, there's a, I'm not just pie in the sky. There are manifestations of this entrepreneurship, and that's why California, in my view, is not getting it as hard as what is happening on the East Coast. Hmm. I really appreciate that example because I've been noticing with my own team, with our partners on the ground, that people have been willing to step outside of their normal day to day in ways that I've never seen before. Right, so a good example of this is you know, in healthcare, we would have never imagined even six months ago that one could get reimbursed for a video call. And yet this is the normal, right? This is the new normal. We have to do it this way because you can't go to a hospital for, you know, just, just to check in with your, your doctor anymore. What other, what other things have you seen? Like, I feel like this is a great time of unlocking where people are no longer holding themselves to timelines that they thought that they needed to be beholden to or particular domains of expertise. People are just going and solving. What else have you Can I embarrass you? I mean, you're one of these great leaders. You know, you, you've pivoted from distribution, from, you know, uh, uh, how do we optimize tracing and distribution with precision so that we can understand with great efficiency and not let a single mango, you know, go to waste anywhere in the supply chain and we can track the fish and make it intelligent and help species. You, you had a whole scheme, you know, you, you've been developing the technology, a world-class team, and then you pivoted, if you will, to redistribution. You know, how, or, or, or maybe it's the other way around, from redistribution to distribution, elimination of waste in a supply chain, and, and now how can you uh, help the most people in the most intelligent way with the greatest good, right? So, so I, you know, functionally what that points to is the highest value society will award is to problem solvers. It's not just to the product of their labor or a service you put out. Product and service is just a medium of exchange. It is, the, it is the idea, the solution, the efficacy, and the relentless, uh, you know, the relentless passionate pursuit of the outcome. So you're that. You know, I call those people doers, right? And, and you know, Joe's a doer. You're a doer, you know? And, and uh, probably most of the kids, people on this call are, are, are doers. Um, but, but that's what we've got to do is we've got to go out there and do. I think the examples are, are countless. You know, Bob Coker Who's, uh, who is leading the government's de governor's task force on testing. He's, he's a partner at Venrock. That's not his day job. He's managing a portfolio of great biomedical companies. But, but he's, you know, is, is spending five days a week in Sacramento and, 
and trying to ramp the certain metrics and everything you're testing because they can't, there's no cavalry coming from the federal government. This is kind of each state for themselves, each community themselves. I wish it wasn't so, it is, but it's good to see that we're in a community in a state where everybody uh, acts with Minutemen like precision and, and, and goes to the front and says, how can I be helpful? Well, since you turned the tables on me for a second, let's talk about natural security and food security. So everything we're doing right now uh, at X and food has been about not just food security as a reaction and part of the recovery, but the hope is that we will have food security in the long term during the period of reform. You and I chatted about that. What does this mean for natural security? We talked about this. You, you did your testimony to Congress some time ago. You've been encouraging people to think about natural security being as important, if not more important, than national security alongside it. What do you think, what, what do you think the future looks like now with natural security? Yeah. Well, you can have natural security without national security, but you can't have national security without natural security, you know, and, and, I'm, and, and we're just trying to help people think through things. And, you know, I'm an old cold warrior. You know, I, like I said, I got to take down the, the Berlin Wall. The truth is most of the foreign policy complex never took off their cold warrior jackets, right? The world changed then. We became a globalized planet, right? Uh, we, you know, truthfully, the world changed you know, 50 years ago when for the first time in my lifetime, we saw images of a blue marble from another celestial body. For the first time ever, we understood we were interconnected. That was the aha moment, right? But we were still in Cold War. We were still very factionalized. We had the UN aspiration and all the beauty that was launched there and we're woods. But, you know, the truth is we weren't living up to it. To, to a degree, the end of the Cold War meant a recognition of interdependence on an unprecedented level. And if you're a, a, a trader or a developer or an investor or financier, you just called it globalization, or Tom would call it the world is flat, okay? And I'm part of all these organizations, Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, et cetera, and everybody still has a bit of that Cold War patina. They're still wearing the jacket. They haven't really left the letterman's jacket behind and said, what is the new thing? Right? And it's sort of the same right now with, with globalization. That interdependence was far more than free trade flows and, 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 and 20 foot containers from China and how many toys could we get, how cheap at Walmart. That globalization was how do we treat the global commons that are unaccounted for, but that, that ultimately um, are the safety and the security and the quality of our species existence. Things that we have taken for granted because we thought they were inexhaustible or without impact, we now know when we, you know, that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you can hit 70 degrees in the Antarctic Peninsula, you know, that was once completely frozen and lose the Alaskan ice shelf, when you are losing permanently the ice cap in the north and all the reflectivity that goes with it, and because we can't re refreeze Greenland, we know. We have permanently messed with things, okay? So we can't necessarily undo the damage, but we can adapt and protect ourselves intelligently by designing systems at a commensurate global scale of interdependence. So when we talk about natural security, 
We're basically saying, um, look, I'm not worried anymore about those big goose-stepping Chinese and Russian parades of the communists past the viewing stand and the missiles they're going to launch and Kim Jong-il and that whole drama. You know, it, 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 it's a pain. you got to manage it. You know, there's a human di diplomatic area. But it's not nearly as consequential as the frequency and severity of natural changes that are occurring that are going to affect our food supply, our water supply, uh, um, uh, our capacity to insure ourselves from, from damages and, and flooding in the streets in, in Miami and elsewhere. One final question for you before we open it up to the students and, and everything they want to poke to your brain about. So, these students who've come together today are here because they're interested in being an entrepreneur. How do you define entrepreneurship for yourself and how are you an entrepreneur? Oh, what a great question. Um, well, I think of it as a privilege. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have um, described myself as an entrepreneur until somebody else did, you know, years later. Actually, I don't think anybody described me as an entrepreneur until, like, I sold my first company. But, but you know, before that, they just said, yeah, there's that kid with the shoebox again, that kind of thing. But, but the um, – um, and I, of course, was removed from the entrepreneurial ecosystem that exists out here. It's so extraordinary. You know, I mean, if it were in the rest of the nation, anything like it, we, you know, our productivity would be just – multiplicative but but um i think um i think anybody uh you know this is this is you know that argument of nature versus nurture you're born an entrepreneur can you learn entrepreneurship i you know i'm not sure it's like so many other things art uh, journalism public speaking you know etc what do you have a predisposition to but i do believe that the common denominator no matter how well you do and that's whether you're running a local uh, a floral office that supports the baseball team or whether you're, you've got some sort of limited partnership for a win project or whether you're uh, Elon Musk or, or, or Joe Simone. You know, uh, in all those cases, the person has got to be driven by, an, by what we used to call fire in the belly in Texas. You, know, you think you call it inner fire here. And, 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 but you've got to have something burning inside you that creates a relentless passion for risk-taking and achievement beyond your available resource with the idea that you are going to create and add value. And usually that latter thing, creating and add value, is linked to the fire. Because if it's not, I never have known an entrepreneur that, that succeeded by exclusively focusing on money. Okay, that, that's where sort of things go, go awry. In fact, sometimes they go off the rails completely you know, and, and fail to self-actualize. But if you can be guided by something bigger and higher, something meaningful, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be your family's name and legacy. You know, it could be your, your involvement in the church or community. It could be your love of the redwood trees. It could be wanting to solve COVID-19 with a vaccine or with swabs. Whatever it is that you tether your sense of value-added mission that will ignite your fire, if you are the type of person who is an entrepreneur, you become a catalyst. You look around the world and you don't see, you know, an obstacles of beaver dams. You see, you see fresh tender, and you're going to be the catalyst, and you're going to create a bonfire of opportunity. And so, so I think, I think the relentless passion to me is the main thing. Everything else is acquirable. You know, people say, "Well, man, you you either been lucky or smart." or something uh, along the way, I always tell people, I, don't, I, I didn't get an MBA, so I, you know, I actually only have 
one real talent, and, and I don't practice it all the time, and that is self-actualization. And, and just knowing the limits and boundaries of your capability and inviting other people to share your fire and, and have a growth mentality to engage with them, accompany them on journey and, and pursue a common objective in, in, in a common way. And, and um, I think that formula is so beautiful in America and every, and we've been proselytizers around the world of it. I've seen Europe become more entrepreneurial. I've been going to Sweden for 30 years. It, that didn't exist 30 years ago. And now you have Daniel Eck and, and, and Spotify and, and, and just incredible uh, entrepreneur epicenters all around the world. And so I think it's proliferating, you know, kind of in a, in a beautiful and, and positive way. Love it. Well, we have five questions queued up already and more coming. So without further ado, let's go through them, shall we? Ooh. Okay. 11 votes. It says, what are the most important technological developments that you would like to see in the energy sector? And what can we do to accelerate progress towards them? Great question. Um, in the energy sector, I don't know if that refers to sort of the conventional energy sector. I never really think of it that way. I actually think of it as what technology are we applying to the physics of energy that creates a healthy, balanced output for nature and humanity's productivity, right? So, so to me, it's not like, oh my God, here's a windmill and that's better than the coal thing. That, you know, that's sort of a rudimentary mechanical you know substitution and it's important i don't want to discount it i used to be a wind developer so of course i love that but but the but i think that um to me the most important thing right now is again to shift our thinking and and to say we are in a new era you know we the, the stone age didn't end for a lack of stones the oil age will not end for a lack of oil but we just had for the first time in the history of oil negative pricing meaning a producer had to pay a receiver to take the product. He had no place to put it. We are putting out more than we are taking. So we just had a, a, the first ever negative in, inversion. Now, you can say, well, that's a quirky thing, but oil's been in the doldrums for years and years and years. Thank God. That's what, you know, we created that whole movement on addicted to oil, and, and addiction is something that will kill you, right? I think we have, you know, we, the lines crossed while I was assistant secretary where all these things became commercial, where clean tech was born, where billions of dollars of capital formation happened and created whole new sectors that are now thriving. And, and I think that, that, you know, it's not that we're at the end of that. We have to keep those accelerations going, but they will. Once a profit, once they become market-driven solutions and aren't dependent exclusively on policy, they will self-propagate. The bigger challenge now is to understand the strategy for how are we applying ourselves, which is the essence of the question. And, 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 and I think instead of applying ourselves to rudimentary systems that will fall of their own weight from, from substitution, I think we have to say, look, oil is not the thing anymore. Data is the thing. Data is the new oil. Data is the driver of all value, uh, of all value and growth in the 21st century. So, what is the energy consumption profile of data since it is um, uh, exponentially increasing? And and so, if you ask me, what's most important to me, it is it is it is getting on top of uh, the uh, the unchecked growth rate of data, which is fine to stay unchecked because it is helping humanity compute. It ironically is the way, it is what the, the toolkit we will need to solve the greatest problems we have. But to do that, we are suctioning unaccounted for energy and not accounting for how that energy's uh, footprint looks. 
And so the thermal efficiency of a semiconductor chip, believe it or not, at the smallest level, what is happening in thermal efficiency that is driving the consumption of data centers is an all-consuming thing to me. How do you get the thermal efficiency of the knowledge tool at the atomic level that is driving all change of value and growth in the world and, and, and be as vigilant about that as we are the drivetrain for a vehicle? How do, how do we think about data centers and the building envelope and how the racks are stacked and the design architecture as vigilantly as we have building codes and high efficiency LEDs for our buildings? That, that is kind of where I'm turning my attention to the biggest challenges I think exist in energy right now. Incredible, incredible. I've heard once that we will run out of electricity in the UK if we continue to increase the data consumption rates in the UK, like in the next five years. Like that's how much we're doubling and tripling our data usage. So time, energy, and data is a bridge that I have not thought about. So thank you for that. All right, next question. We'll do maybe two or three more. Jen says, how did you keep that energy you had in your 20s until today? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, gosh, that is a great question. I do not know. I've been accused of being a uh, um, ever ready as an energizer uh, bunny, uh, you know, for most of my life. So I don't, I don't know. It's certainly not my, uh, it's certainly not the best healthy diet or something. Um, so um, I think, I think, um, you know, in my own case, like I say, you don't walk anybody's shoes. I'm not a Tony Robbins type guru or anything, but, but I, I believe you have to have a sense of mission. I believe you have to have a sense of purpose beyond yourself. Um, and, and so, you know, I think Emily, you asked this question earlier, which is linked to this about nature and my affinity for it. The only place where I can truly be still, where I can truly be calm and at peace and serene and deeply introspective is in nature. And, 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 and so for me, it, it is like a balm that the pharmaceutical industry could not possibly devise. And, and, um, and so, you know, there's something magic about contemplating the uh, aerodynamics and the, uh, of a dragonfly's uh, wing or, or the, uh, the miracle of a chrysalis you know, or, or the dance of a bee. And, and, and the, the, so stirring myself in that way and fortifying my imagination brings me back to the same imagination that, that I was blessed with a long time ago. And I just, I never want to lose imagination or a growth mindset. My father used to say, the day you stop growing is the day you start dying. And I can see from my father who's 90 years old that he's still working on growing. He, he intends to live every breath until he dies. And, and, and that's sort of the journey I want to be on. And so I think as long as you maintain a growth mindset and an openness to not, not calcifying yourself and declaring you're done at any moment and, and continually inviting new ideas and people and energy and positivity uh, towards purpose, that, that you'll stay very young. So good. So good. All right. Next one. Jenny asks, what is the most effective way to shift the public attitude regard regarding the urgency of addressing these permanent environmental changes? Such a great question. The, the, the most important thing for me when you desire a shift in attitude is not to presume that you are the subject of the action and the other party is the object of the action. I have a solution 
And if only everybody else was as privileged to me with access to resources who had my education and were up the curve high enough, if they were simply as smart where I could be on par, then the world would be better off. You know, I mean, they're in, and, and, and unfortunately, regrettably, uh, uh, many of the people I admire for the content of their message uh, have a failure in the tactical delivery uh, on that. Uh, um, righteousness sometimes can be perceived as self-righteousness, and, and, um, and then rather than a, 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 a helpful hand of, outre of generous outreach to bring people along and invite them into coalition in the mutual best interest of the common denominator of our humanity, we end up in a condescension of separation quite often generated by some of the smartest minds simply saying, you are the other, and if the other was more like me, you, we'd be better. And I don't believe in that approach. I am from a, a, a different place, and, and, uh, um, um, and, and I believe in meeting people where they are and understanding the circumstance and the consequence of what is happening in the middle of our country. And, 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 I, and part of which is that they have nothing like the resources on the Northeast Corridor or in our cities on the West Coast. And, and, and so, so to me, um, uh, the next time there is a proactive design in policy um, uh, and, and some form of exercise leadership in our country, it ought to be aimed at unifying us and not unifying us around this is how smart I am and when you catch up with me, we'll all be okay. Um, uh, if you're only as liberal as I am, you'll be acceptable. You know, that is the wrong thinking for me. I don't, I don't think you'll ever, ever, ever win with that. I think instead you have to say, we are going to create a new era of prosperity on a, on a bag of old tricks called the American Free Enterprise System and the boundless innovation, uh, mother necessity, uh, being powerful for an idea whose time has come. We're going to go back to that, and everybody's all in. And instead of concentrating the money exclusively on the epicenter occur on the coast, we're going to make sure that that is shared collectively across communities, and we're going to bind up those communities with broadband so that everybody has equitable access to speed and everybody has equitable access to technologies that will liberate you and, and remove all big, clunky 19th century layers that separate you from the sunshine. And, and we can do this because we're Americans, and we always have. But, it, what we, but when we've done it before, we did it by design. We transitioned ourselves with thoughtful, equitable design that made us freer and thrive at a greater level. If you don't have a design, then you're drifting by default. And when you're drifting by default, you end up with this polarity and this very unfortunate animus. And, and then people are asking the question, well, how do I get over the animus? Well, the first thing is don't create it. Don't create it. Design for unity. And, and that may not be the answer you were looking for, but it's the one I genuinely believe in. One of my favorite Andy Kirster comments was, I, I think it was you, who said, you know, there's red states, there's blue states. We're actually just all purple, right? We're, yeah. we're just one, right? When, especially when it comes to questions of natural security. So time for the purple. Time for the purple. Yeah. All right. This is an easy one. Maybe not. Maybe depends. This is kind of a, a, an interesting one. Alex asks, what's up with the shirt from Scott Base Antarctica? <laughs> yeah. What's up with it today is it's got this really cool high dry thing. So I really like the way it wicks. You know, uh, you know, I was a little nervous talking about it. 
but but um, Scott Bass has the best pub uh, down in Antarctica. That's important to know. Um, uh, I don't know if I've got time for the story, but but the um, uh, when I was one of the greatest uh, honors I had uh, as as an accidental tourist in public service was when uh, they said uh, you know someone's got to go and uh, inaugurate the uh, new South Pole Station. It's been built over ten years and it just got completed, and we need somebody from the science complex who will do it. And I was like, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And, and everybody else took a step backwards. And they're like, okay, Chrysler's going. He's, he's on his way to the South Pole, you know, two weeks down. So you go to Christchurch, where we have the U.S. Antarctic program. You go to McMurdo Station. And fortunately for me, we had an unbelievable three to four days of blizzards. So I got to hang out at McMurdo Station. It was like, you know, a delay of game. And, you know, I'm hanging out at McMurdo, and I'm learning everything about it. And, of course, McMurdo shares its grid powered by Vin Diesel engines with Scott Bakes, with the, with the Kiwis. And we, you know, every day, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't know about this, this to me is one of the greatest achievements of our country and its history, conserving an entire continent of this earth for nothing other than the betterment of science and humanity. We did that. We went down there as the only country standing after World War II with 17 countries exercising colonial claims, and we denied them all. And we built a science station at the South Pole. We built the biggest one at McMurdo, where the historic explorers' huts were. And we said, this continent remains open. It will not be exploited. It will not be extracted. There will be no mining. We will, as a species, come together. And that's why we have the best air quality measurement. That's why we have the ice core samplings that give us a millennia of, of data. And anyway, in that place, we opened up uh, this uh, thing from 10 years earlier. I got to go with my, one of my heroes, Dr. Neil Lane, who was at Rice University with me, was the science advisor to Bill Clinton. And, and, and you know, we're riding down there at C-130. We open up the South Pole Station, um, inevitably. But, but at Scott Base, because I'm an energy guy, I went around, I checked out all the diesel engines, and I'm like, what's with the diesel engines? You know, with jet fuel that we bring in for the highest dollar in the world other than what we delivered on the Afghan front, the highest dollar of delivered fuel, not even regular fuel, but jet fuel to power diesel engines, to power incandescent light bulbs for leaky drafty cabins for our scientists. And I'm going, whoa, you know, I'm the assistant secretary of energy. Are you kidding me? I've got this science mission and we are just wasting money on all this logistics and overhead while I'm doing LED lighting and everything else. So, in the last months of the Bush administration, I called up the National Science Foundation, who run the base, and I said, have I got a deal for you? I want to give you, I'm going to go to National Renewable Lab, and I'm going to give you some wind turbines. We're going to get rid of those diesel engines, and this is a great thing. But those guys in Washington, they're like, whoa, this is the ass end of the Bush administration. I am not touching this. I got new bosses coming, man. So they start slow rolling me. Okay, but so I called back up to, you know, I just met with Helen Clark, the Prime Minister of New Zealand on the way home, and I called back up and I say, look, if I got a deal for you, I can't get rid of these wind turbines with the guys across the street who are my colleagues at National Science Foundation, how about if we work with you guys to put up wind turbines, uh, uh, you know, and that, uh, under the condition that you share them with McMurdo? So in that way, I made a lot of Kiwi friends, and uh, to this day, I spend a lot of time with the Australian, uh, the, New, the New Zealand science complex because um, they're just so good, they're so active, and uh, and I'm just so blessed to have uh, taken part in their uh, in their great efforts. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner 
are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.